Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Matt Podolsky. I'm here today to introduce you all to a brand new podcast series that we've been working on here at the Wildlands Collective for over a year now. This new show is called Common Land, and it's a bit different from what you're used to hearing here on Eyes on Conservation. Common Land is a radio documentary style series. We'll be telling the story behind one particular patch of protected land over the course of 10 30-minute episodes. The protected area whose story we're telling in Season 1 is the Morley-Nelson-Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm not going to say too much about this unique NCA here in the intro, because I think this episode I'm about to play will speak for itself, but I will say that the development of this series has been a labor of love for me personally. I live just 30 miles from the Snake River Canyon where this National Conservation Area, or NCA, is located, and it's been amazing to have the opportunity to take this deep dive into the history, science, and politics behind its creation. So if you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to Common Land so that you can tune in to all of our future episodes. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday afternoon for the next nine weeks, and there are lots of exciting stories to come. So here you are. I present Common Land. I've watched this fabulous aerial combat down in the Snake River Canyon for 40 years. There is nothing that matches the combat between an eagle and a prairie falcon and an eagle and a prairie falcon and a red tail when they're fighting for nesting sites. Mm -hmm. And since there are so many, it goes on every day down there, and it is absolutely fantastic. But they never kill. The mountain lions fight over their nesting and their female. They never kill. The grizzly bears fight over their things. They never kill. And the falcons and the eagles do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And humanity did it once, just the other day, when they knocked the red communist in the head and didn't fire a shot. <laughs> That's the voice of Morley Nelson, recorded just a few weeks after the beginning of the demolition of the Berlin Wall. Morley was America's most famous falconer and advocate for protecting birds of prey. He was a celebrity in his hometown of Boise, Idaho, and his knowledge of the Snake River Canyon just south of town was unparalleled. Morley passed away in 2005 at the age of 88, but not before a handful of chroniclers were able to record his voice to tape, like this from the founder of the Archives of Falconry. This is Kent Carney, and I'm at the home of Morlin W. Nelson in Boise, Idaho. It is 3 o'clock on the afternoon of the 5th of July, 1990. It was the sport of falconry that led to Morley Nelson's obsession with birds of prey. Here is how Mr. Carney defines the sport that was the single greatest influence on Morley's life. Technically speaking, the sport of falconry is the pursuit of wild quarry in its natural state and habitat by means of a tra trained bird of prey. Morley brought falconry into the mainstream of American culture. 
He trained birds of prey for numerous Hollywood films throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and he convinced the biggest names in natural history filmmaking, Walt Disney and Marlon Perkins among them, to produce documentaries about birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon. Hello, welcome to Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Right here in southern Idaho, along the Snake River, we finally found one of the heaviest populations of golden eagles in the world. We named it the Valley of Eagles. For eons of time, the Snake River has cut through layers of sandstone and lava to form these mighty cliffs, towering a thousand feet in the air. Cliffs so high and jagged that Jim and I were glad to have an expert like Morley Nelson along to lead us to the nest of a pair of eagles he'd recently discovered. Even if you haven't heard the name Morley Nelson, it's possible that you've seen one of his trained eagles or falcons in an old movie. Although it wasn't his original intention, it was Morley who was largely responsible for the establishment of a national conservation area in the Snake River Canyon of southwestern Idaho. I never dreamt that there was the potential for a refuge. I was thinking of some kind of a, I was trying to hope to change the law so we wouldn't shoot them all. Because they went down there to shoot the pigeons and they'd shoot the falcons and the eagles and God, I got wounded birds, you know, coming out my ears. You're listening to Common Land, a new podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Common Land explores the untold stories behind protected areas. We'll explore the often complex realities behind the establishment of protected areas from all around the globe. In Season 1, we are exploring the creation story behind a 484,000-acre patch of protected land in Idaho, an area roughly half the size of Rhode Island. These desert canyonlands were set aside primarily to protect one particular group of animals, birds of prey. We're talking about the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, home to a unique assemblage of North American raptors. Well, I was uh, about 12 years old when I got the first hawk. And what I was doing, I was herding cattle in North Dakota on their land I still have, uh, my grandfather's homestead. And I knew of the, the teal ducks. And even at 12 years old, we, were, uh, we loaded our own shotgun shells and we shot our winter meat often. And... I never could hit the, the teal. Uh-huh. Obviously, I was shooting a foot or two behind him. I never had a pattern that got him. And then one day, I went to water my horse, and I scared up uh, these seven teal that lived on the the uh, little pond there. And I don't know whether, to this day, whether it was a peregrine or a prey falcon. It could have been either one. All I heard it coming, and these teal were about... 50 to 75 feet in the air, and that character came down in a vertical stoop and busted one of those teal and rolled up over in the air and then took it out of the air before it ever hit the ground. (laughs) 
And I was standing there with my horse in my hand, absolutely amazed. And I said, well, I got to get rid of that gun and get a hawk. From that time on the farm when he saw that peregrine falcon take a teal duck, the stoop that he saw that day was the most magnificent thing he'd ever seen in his life to this day. It was just like the singular moment, and then every other time he saw that, that was the coolest thing in the world. Steve Stubner is the author of Cool North Wind, a biography of Morley. For him, it was visceral. It was just like, whoa, did you see that? You know, And that was just like the thing that inspired his work for a lifetime. Steve spent countless hours with Morley while working on his book, and he recorded many of their conversations with an old microcassette deck. So your house was in Fargo, and he had a law practice there. Well, that was after I was in grade school up in eighth or ninth grade. What about when you were born and first? Oh, I was out on the I was out on the ranch. Okay, and I grew up uh, out on the ranch, got milk and cows, getting up at five thirty in the morning and. I still wake up at 5.30 every day morning, including this morning. Morley attended North Dakota State University in the 1930s, where he studied soil science. When World War II broke out, Morley was called to serve in the 10th Mountain Division, where he became a captain of the ski troops. You men are here to learn military skiing. Some of you have skied as civilians and followed certain standard techniques. You will find that the Army has added to the best of these techniques to create better ones of its own. That's all. Good luck and good skiing. Left. Pace! The 10th Mountain Division was an experiment. They trained at high altitude in Colorado, preparing to fight in the most difficult mountainous terrain in Europe. The training was extremely rigorous, and it continued for years. It wasn't until 1944 that the division was first deployed. In the closing months of 1944 forward units of the American 5th Army were faced with the task of breaking through these ridges of the German Gothic defense line. The 10th Mountain Division was tasked with taking the last remaining stronghold of the German army in the mountains of Italy. Although they were successful in completing this operation, the casualties were among the highest of any division that served in World War II. As the 87th swung to the northeast to firm up the Belvedere Line, evidence of the cost of that action began to show. After the assault on Mount Belvedere, Morley was struck by shrapnel from a shell exploding nearby. The injury was serious, and it would mean the end of his combat experience in World War II. I had two bullet holes in here, and they were below the bone, this little one under here. That's on your right, right, on the right uh, arm, but right I had arm. a big hole back here, yeah. seven cuts in there, and 32 inches of incision, and no nerve here, both back here. And, and uh, so I had a cast on the leg. Like all the members of the greatest generation, Dad was damn near, he should have been killed at 28 years old. But he lived, and he had a son the day he came back from Europe in casts. He was so damn happy, like all those guys, to be alive. The idea of being unemployed or out of money or I don't have enough food or I don't have a good roof, that didn't scare any of those guys because they'd been in combat. You know, a tough life on stateside with no bullets coming at you is easy living. He was happy to be alive, and he was going to make the best of it. 
That son, who had been born just months before, was Norm Nelson, also known as Beave, whose voice you just heard. Throughout the trauma Morley experienced during the war, one thing never waned, his passion for birds of prey. He was called the Falcon, and he would lead his troops up when they'd get up on a ridge or something in Colorado when they were training for the 10th Mountain Infantry and a Falcon or something would fly by. He would point this out to his troops. In the middle of the battles, and when we were in reserve, I was talking about saving the birds and the soils of the earth for the future. In other words, I was, at the time the war was on, thinking beyond the war and even to the birds. So by the time he was able to return home, Morley was anxious to start trapping and flying falcons again, and he had his eyes set on one particular canyon in southwest Idaho, the Snake River Canyon, south of Boise, which he had briefly visited before the war. The canyon, which now is a paved road, was a single-track dirt road. We had a three-speed panel truck, and it took us forever to get out there. I mean, it took almost two hours to get to what is now Dedication Point. Morley became the snow survey supervisor for the Columbia River Basin soon after the war, putting the Snake River Canyon right in his backyard. Then in 1948, when we moved here, then my sons and I, and this is an interesting thing, we found all of those falcons, and big falcons don't live that close together, quarter mile and all that. I just couldn't believe that there were so damn many prey falcons in there. Quarter mile, in some places there's one on the eight, top of the 800-foot cliff and one below, and a quarter mile over, the same thing. There'd be two of them at two levels. They documented that there were more than 600 pairs of raptors nesting in the area representing 15 species. more than 200 pairs of prairie falcons nesting in the area representing 5% of the the bird's world population. Prairie falcons range all across western North America, from southern Canada into central Mexico, and from the Pacific coast to the Great Plains. But nowhere else do they nest in such high densities, and Morley was one of the first to document this unique concentration. The Aeolian soils, the geology, the Cascade Range, and the other ranges to the west, so they only got from 10 to 18 inches of rain. And the fact that at the end of the Ice Age, when all this happened, the wind, it all dried up, and the wind blew this beautiful, silly clay loam four to five, six feet over all of the lava. And that's that's the 486,000 acres we're now trying to get Congress to set aside because if you go south of the river, east, or west or north, you lose it. Mm-hmm. You get back to gravelly soils in the Thompson Ground Squirrel Canyon. Yeah. Despite the fact that Morley clearly understood how unique the Snake River Canyon is, it didn't initially cross his mind to seek protection for the area. He was, um, and he was a falconer. That's all he wanted to do was was, um, was be a falconer and train birds and hunt birds, and he just wanted to, to experience the, the flight. 
And then he was he was working on trying to keep everybody from shooting birds. That's what his main thing was. We got to stop shooting all these birds. How did Morley go about trying to stop people from shooting birds of prey? He was the master of show and tell, and I think in retrospect that was really one of his greatest gifts, absolutely. Like going to a meeting with an eagle on your fist or a hawk on your fist was the way you made a great success compared to going there and yapping about it. If you, especially an eagle, because it's so big it challenges everybody, they say, well, he must know what he's talking about or he wouldn't be able to handle that big bruiser. (laughs) You know, early on, he was trying to um, get people to stop shooting eagles and hawks off the top of fence posts. That was one of his first things that he was doing in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 60s. And it's hard for people to even imagine today. But, I mean, they saw him like a frickin' gopher or a coyote or, you know, a varmint. That's how ranchers saw them. And sheep ranchers literally thought that golden eagles flew off with lambs. They never really saw that, but that was what they thought. And so for him to actually take one of his, his trained golden eagles out on the edge of the Snake River Birds of Prey area with Marlon Perkins... And Jim Fowler, and they tied the eight-pound weight to the bottom of that bird to its talons and its legs. It couldn't fly off the ground. And that was just a classic master of show-and-tell moment right there where it's like, okay, there it is. You can't, it can't happen. He, 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 had a just, he had such a convincing presence about his presentation on the value of these birds of prey in this particular habitat that you couldn't sit there and go this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever. I mean, he was just like all authority. Despite Morley's success with this approach, he still felt there must be a way to reach larger groups of people. And then came the 1953 Walt Disney documentary The Living Desert. The rattlesnake is on the prowl again. So far, this killer seems to have had his own way. But there are a few creatures who dare to challenge him. And one of these is the red-tailed hawk. When I saw what happened, when the red tail killed the rattlesnake in the living desert, and everybody said, you've got to quit shooting those chicken hawks because they kill rattlesnakes, and it went to 20, 37 nations. Mm-hmm. I said, made a minute now. The hawk finds an opening, seizes the rattler's head. And as suddenly as it began, the violent conflict is ended. That was when I, I said, I'm getting, and I got a camera from Disney. I said, boy, I'm, and I started shooting this stuff that they couldn't shoot. Morley started filming Raptors whenever he had the chance, and he became involved in numerous other film productions. By the early 1960s, he had enough clout to pitch a documentary focused exclusively on birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon. I took that footage down with old Walt Disney and some footage that I had uh, that I've shot of an eagle flying right up above my house here, coming down. And they said, wait a minute, we'll do Ida the Offbeat Eagle if you will help us write the story. Walt Disney presents 
Ida, the offbeat eagle. This film was released in 1965 and was introduced by Walt Disney himself. Now, actually, there are two American eagles, the bald eagle and the golden eagle, which happens to be the subject of our story. The story followed the relationship between a golden eagle and a hermit named Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy soon discovered she was a wise bird for sure. No trick could keep her from the treat. Almost the entire film was shot in the Snake River Canyon, and it brought a huge amount of attention to the region. Soon after Ida the Offbeat Eagle aired, Morley's Golden Eagles and the Snake River Canyon were featured again in another high-profile natural history show, Wild Kingdom. We drifted down this beautiful river to meet Morley Nelson. The young eagles are now on their own, and Morley has picked a spot not far from the cliff where we can observe their flying techniques. Interestingly enough, Morley never quit his job doing snow survey work. The early films were largely his vision, but it was his sons, Norm and Tyler, and other falconer apprentices who allowed these complicated film shoots to be successful. When we had seven eagles to do Ida the Offbeat Eagle, Beaver and Tyler were the reason that who can keep and fly seven eagles. That is a major, major accomplishment. By the mid-60s, it had become well-known in Hollywood that if you needed a raptor in your film, Morley was the person to call. Once I started to work with the eagles, and we did uh, the Day of the Eagle, we trained an eagle to catch a parachute in the air. And what they were doing was taking dope from Mexico and drop it in at parachutes before this ever really got going. They had a film about it, see? And this eagle was going to stop this. It was going to catch the, the parachute, and this was the story. The, the famous story about Otis, he was supposed to fly and catch a parachute that had drugs in it, and they got the shot right off the bat. Then they wanted a bunch of other shots, and Otis went, I'm out of here. He was fat, in hot weather. So I chased him for a week on a horse. And I only saw him one time. And he would not come back to me. And then finally I got up on this ridge and I got off the horse and I saw two eagles flying, one behind the other. And they flew right through the sun. And then one went left and the other one folded his wings up and came right at me and landed on my teepage. And um, I rode back to the film crew and got a standing ovation as I rode into camp with my eagle on my horse. I learned I could tape feathers into a hawk's wing with a black line on it and let it fly out there. And when I wanted to, grab the line that held on two fairly big feathers and jerk them out of the bird's wing and the bird would flip upside down and absolutely act like you hit it with a shotgun to such a point that I got letters saying, why did you let those people shoot the bird, both in the in the Disney film and in the Paramount film? Hmm. This is oh. in my side of the mouth for Paramount. Yeah. To a lot of folks, it may have looked like Morley and his sons were crazy. The obsession with raptors was all-consuming. I was training birds to be in movies when I was a kid. When I was in high school, I was kind of an oddball because I had to go home every day and work eagles. 
I'm the only kid in the whole Pacific Northwest training a Golden Eagle. My daughter and, and every one of my family, all of the three boys, I have to just smile at their intensity in the fact that they have lived with me and were a part of, and the reason that I could accomplish what I did. It was an enormous undertaking. It took a whole family to do what one person was getting paid minimally for. That's the voice of Morley's first wife, Betty Ann, recorded to microcassette by Steve Stubner in 1999. I did the work that made being falconry in a neighborhood possible for Morley. Yeah. I'm not telling you this in a defensive way because I think he recognized that. I do. Mm-hmm. Falconry and raptor conservation had become a way of life for the Nelson family. And while Morley's sons, Norm and Tyler, embraced filmmaking and the artistic expression of Birds of Prey, Tim, like his father, was most interested in the science behind raptors and their habitats. So my son, Tim, and I started the research with the Fish and Wildlife Service out of the Portland office of of, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And they said, we want you to go down there and see how many of those can you substantiate that you're talking about. Nobody believes it. This was the first research project focused on birds of prey to be conducted in the state of Idaho, and it was initiated in the spring of 1966, less than a year after the release of Ida the Offbeat Eagle. Morley's son Tim was in high school at the time, and he was hired by Gary Hickman, the primary investigator for this research project, to assist with the fieldwork. When the study was published in 1968, Hickman wrote in the acknowledgments, I express my sincere appreciation to Tim Nelson, who spent many long, strenuous days in the field assisting in data collection. We went where the birds were, and they were always out in the desert someplace. And there we'd be. Somewhere where the birds... I don't know, it was kind of fun. It didn't matter. And Tim, I have letters from him because he wanted to be a pilot. By 1969, Tim Nelson was studying to earn an engineering degree, and he had just enrolled in an ROTC program, hoping to become a pilot in the Air Force. This was a crucial moment in Morley's efforts as an advocate for birds of prey. His films were reaching millions of people, and the first research paper on birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon had just been published the previous year. There was a lot of big stuff happening and in retrospect I kind of feel like that was when Morley his he was peaking almost in terms of his own accomplishments but then in the fall of 1969 Morley's um, second son was killed in a car wreck up at the University of Idaho Tim Nelson's death was a crushing blow for Morley and the entire family, and something that perhaps caused Morley to reassess his priorities in life. It's clear that this was a sensitive subject for Morley well into his 80s. I mean, how would you describe Tim's personality? Um, He was scientifically oriented. Sounds like of all your kids, he was maybe more similar to you than anybody else. He was. He was. He was interested in science, and they weren't. 
I just found that to be amazing, you know, how he was able to sort of compartmentalize that kind of stuff and and uh, move on with his life in a way that um, other people it could send them in a t- into a tailspin from which they'd never recover. You wonder how you live through it and then you realize a week's gone by. And you're still alive. Yeah. You don't know how you did that. You know, so 30 years have gone by and I don't know how. It's hard not to see the link between Tim's death and what happened next with Morley and the Snake River Canyon. The early research in the Snake River Canyon that Tim Nelson helped initiate along with his father was a modest beginning to a research effort that would play a crucial role in the establishment of protection for this region in the decades that followed. Sadly, Tim would never get to see this research effort blossom to become one of the most intensive raptor monitoring efforts ever conducted. While it's Morley's name that has been etched into the history of the Snake River Canyon, it's clear that for the Nelsons, raptor conservation was a family endeavor. While Tim's story ended in tragedy in 1969, the story of the creation of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area had only just begun. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production assistance provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, The Great Turtle, and John Denver. Additional audio was provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, freesound.org, and the BBC Sound Archive. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.